Kelly plays it back in and goes burrowing in after it. Pumped it on further and continued to work. Coming by now is Goodrow. Goodrow around behind. Oh, Torelli scores! Or does he? Yes! Torelli has scored in overtime. And the Tampa Bay Lightning are going to the Stanley Cup final. The official. Goodrow to Sorelli off the post and then off the left pad of Arlamov to the back of the net. Delayed reaction. Sorelli finally gets that look. Hey now, hey now, hey now, welcome to season 10, episode 18 of the Sportscasters. This is Steve Bennett, and I am very excited for a few different reasons. Number one, the Saints are back, and the Saints are 1-0, and I know a lot of you have been concerned about my indifference towards sports and we're wondering you know what happened on Sunday how did I feel about the Saints and it reminded me of that episode of Seinfeld where George says I think it moved Uh, that was me on Sunday I'll tell you more about that in a second I'm also excited today uh, because I have four interviews recorded right now And that means two episodes of the Sportscasters. I'm not going to put them out at once. I'll stagger them a few days. But they are driven by two debuts uh, and two interviews with two guys who I like a ton. So this is what we're going to do. This episode, number 18 today. And I think it's 18. I should double check and make sure it's not 19. I mean, it could be 19. It's funny that I somehow never know what episode it is. (laughs) I always think to myself, double check what episode we're on, and then I don't. It is 18. All right, 18 is going to be this. We are going to take a break in a minute, and I'm going to be back with a debut. Uh, This guy uh, wrote a sports business column for USA Today. And then when Rudy Martsky retired... He came back. He he started to write the sports media column for USA Today. He's worked for the New York Times. He's worked for a bunch of different newspapers, magazines, sporting news, and right now he works for a website called Front Office Sports, which focuses on sports business. And I'm really excited for him to make his debut. His name is Michael McCarthy. And no, he is not the uh, the former coach of the Green Bay Packers. It's a different, it's a different guy named Michael McCarthy. Uh, he's going to join us. We did it awesome. It's an awesome debut. Uh, Forty minutes on sports media, NFL ratings, which has been a fun debate this week. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. And I'm excited for that. Then we'll do the book club update. 
Uh, and then we will have uh, a really special debut. Uh, Rick Emmett, uh, the singer of the band Triumph, uh, who their song Magic Power is the first song I ever loved, the first song I ever knew the words to. Uh, and Rick and I did almost an hour talking about music. And you don't need to know Triumph to really appreciate this interview. It's very much about you know a songwriter in the in, in the back half of the twilight of his career kind of reflecting on the industry and his and his career and what it was and you know him and I talk about what it meant to me and 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 he talks about what it means to him to hear people talk about what it meant to them it's really great i hope you like it and um that's the show for today now the other show which will be out in a few days is kind of led by Jeff Perlman uh, Jeff has a book out called Three Ring Circus. It actually comes out Tuesday. I'll try to put the episode up Tuesday or Wednesday probably. And uh, Three Ring Circus uh, is the focus of that interview. But it's it's Perlman and I. And if you've listened to this show for a while, you know how great those interviews can be. And also Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman will be on that show. He and I talk college football um, with a little bit of a focus on the Oklahoma Sooners. And I'm excited about that one as well. So that's the four interviews for the next two shows. They're all recorded. And of course, this episode is Michael McCarthy and Rick Emmett. Real quickly before I get to them, I wanted to talk about Sunday because football season started. And I've talked a little bit on this show about how I've had this struggle, this indifference towards sports. What was I going to do? Do I still like sports? And my hope all along was that the Saints would snap me out of it. Well, Thursday was opening night of football. I watched it. I didn't care that much. You know, it was an okay game, Houston and Kansas City. I like to watch that Chiefs offense. You know, Mahomes is cool to watch. He's a cool guy. It was whatever. But it was, I guess, a little bit of a promising start. Like, I did tune in. I was interested. You know, whatever. And then Sunday comes, and I woke up. Paula was sleeping at my brother Greg's house. I went to pick her up. I came home. I watched about till about 2 o'clock or 2.30. I watched the 1 o'clock games on Red Zone. Uh, then I took a nap. And then I woke up, and I watched the Saints game. And I had fun watching the Saints game. I really did. Uh, I think that it's very true that my passion and my love for the Saints is something that will never die. Uh, my dog was nervous like he always is when I watch football. You know, my daughter, now a year older, with a, a year more of understanding of what it's like to watch football with dad, had fun in her Drew Brees jersey. You know, a few times tell, told me to calm down, daddy, calm down. You know, and the Saints won. It was fun. It felt good. I remember on opening day the year before when the Saints kicked the field goal. A walk-off 58-yard field goal by Will Lutz to beat Houston. I had sort of a cathartic release that was built up in me, having had the NFC Championship stolen from us the year before. That one felt a certain way. This didn't approach that, I don't think. It felt good to care, though. It felt good. Uh, Michael Thomas got hurt 
I found that out the next day, and I was like, all right, the honeymoon's over. It's football season again. The good with the bad. Here we go. Mike Thomas got hurt blocking for a running play with less than a minute to go and a double-digit lead. Stupidity. But it's back. I'm glad it's back. I had fun watching. I really did. My brothers are coming over to watch the Monday Night Football game this week. The Saints play the Raiders. It's the first game ever in Vegas, and I want to spoil that. I really wish there was fans there. Maybe they do have some fans. I'm not even sure, but I wish the stadium was going to be packed and we could just go in and crush their hearts. Uh, but part of me knows it's it's an easier game because there's not. You know, it's, it is an easier game this week than it would be trying to win the first ever football game in Vegas in a full stadium might have been very difficult. And it will still be difficult. They're kind of a they're like an under the radar maybe okay team, maybe a good bad team. Josh Jacobs is a really good running back. I like him a lot. So that's where I'm at. I did enjoy it. It was fun. Oh, I wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to a listener. His name is Ian get his name right it's i know it's ian but uh ian ross uh he and i had a bit of a back and forth kind of talking about some of the things that i've been talking about on the podcast his reaction to my one last thing about turning 40 which i've gotten tremendous you know feedback from that thank you to everyone who's reached out but i wanted to especially thank ian uh for the a collaboration there as well. All right. I'm excited for this show, so let's do it. Uh, we'll take a break, and we'll be right back with the debut of Michael McCarthy. Our first guest today is from New York City. He's a graduate of St. John's University. He currently is a teacher. At Rutgers, he also worked for many years at the USA Today, writing about sports business, sports media. He currently does the same thing at Front Office Sports, and he's making his sportscaster's debut today. A warm welcome to Michael McCarthy. Hey, Michael, how are you doing today? Good. I have to say, before we get into the sports media stuff, the fun stuff, that for many years, my routine as a college student, before that and even beyond that, I looked forward to it all morning. I would go to the to the cafeteria on campus, and I would get a USA Today, and I would get my lunch, and I would sit down by myself in the cafeteria, and I would read the sports page in the USA Today. And the first thing I always looked for when I sat down was a column by Rudy or yourself. So thank you for many years of – I really learned and discovered my love for the sports media beat, as they say, through – Martsky and McCarthy in the uh, in the USA Today. So thank you very much for that. All those years, I I appreciate it and I'm flattered. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it was uh, it was it was a different, I guess, more innocent time on the sports media beat. You know, um, to be able to read you two guys, and I would always hear about um, in New York City. Uh, I would always hear about. Um, help me out. Why can't I think of his name? Um. He hated the WWF and he hated uh, Mike and the Mad Dog. And um, anyway, the sports team. Chris Russo? No, no, he is the Mad Mike Dog. Mike Francesa? No, he is Mike. No, the, this this the sports media main sports media beat guy in New York City at the time was Phil. 
Phil um Phil Mushnick. Mushnick, yes, thank you. Phil Mushnick, I would always hear about him, but never had a way to read him. Um and in our paper in Buffalo, we have a guy named Alan Pergamon, if I'm saying that right. Right. Who would do some sports media once in a while, but his beat was more media in general. So it was only like a sometimes on sports media. So really like my gateway into that or any information I had on that was reading you guys. And now, of course, seems like everybody loves the sports sports media beat, right? Like there's been web pages dedicated to it, whether it be awful announcing or, you know, Deadspin, a huge part of Deadspin was sports media. You know, there's Deitch, there's Trena, there's um, Marchand. You know, I could go on and on and on. What about the growth of the sports media beat and um, your years kind of following it? what you thought of the the growth and the development of it from the newspaper days and so few to now so many? Well, one of the things that USA Today recognized early on with Rudy, Mike Heastand, and myself was that there was huge interest in this. And one of the reasons I say that is because we all like, you know, different things you know, different kinds of books, different kinds of magazines, different kind of movies. But when it comes to sports, we all see the same announcers, right? Yep. If you get the number one CBS game, you know you're going to get Jim Nance and Tony Romo. Before that, it was Jim Nance and Phil Simms. So because we all are subjected to the same people over and over and over, everybody develops very firm opinions. Uh, and I think USA Today was very smart at the time to recognize that, that there was a huge area here, not only around sports media, but sports business in general, the whole outside-the-line subject. So uh, to me, it's been great to see the growth. I think you know, there's so many people out there doing a great job on it right now. Uh, you know, I love reading about it. I'm a fan of uh, the business. You know, I love interacting with the sports media people. So uh, I'm just uh, really happy to see where it is. Because when you were at USA Today, you didn't just do sports media either. You also covered business, right? And um, Correct. The focus uh, on the business part. I was a business reporter right. and an investigative reporter uh, at first for uh, USA Today. And what happened is uh, you know, Rudy decided to retire at some point You know, after a great run. And uh, he standed myself, uh, took over the column. But yeah, I mean, I started out my career as a business reporter and morphed into sports through the sports business side and then eventually sports media. Now, I don't know that the sports business beat is in as good of hands uh, these days. You know, I know that it seems like kind of Rovell is the main guy everyone thinks of when you think of sports business. Um, and he is a very polarizing, I would say, at the least figure. Uh, but now you're, you for the last year have been uh, covering uh, the beat for front office sports. And I, I'll be honest, I haven't known about it that long. I think one of your stories got tweeted into my column, and I've discovered it now and now follow it, and it's great. So I'm glad it's there. But what about front office sports and its spot in the current um, kind of sports yeah, business it, it, beat? It's very interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because, you know, sports business coverage is changing a lot. Uh, you know, Front Office Sports, which was founded by, uh, you know, my two bosses while they were in college, you know what I mean, is 
by far the fastest grower in this space. Uh, matter of fact, a lot during the last month we have more paid views than anybody, uh, and that includes uh, Sports Business Journal, which has been around 20, 25 years, and we're only five years old. So this, uh, front office sports is, is taken off like a rocket ship, um, which is growing by leaps and bounds. We're one of the only people out there that's hiring and, and growing our staff. And uh, it, it's a great time because, you know, Darren, who, you know, did a great job on the sports business beat and is still involved with it, has really transitioned. He doesn't really do uh, sports business as much anymore as he does sports betting. That's his main sure. uh, focus uh, at a, the Action Network with sports business kind of second. So, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, new players in this field. We're one of them. You know, I would dare say we're, you know, the, the youngest and uh, the hottest player out there. And it, it feels great. It feels like we have a lot of momentum on our side. Yeah, it's a great site. And, uh, you know, the thing about sports, Sport Business Journal is that when I think of it, I always think of John, and he's so much focused on sports media that I'll sometimes just think of that site as sports media. You know, so this site your site i just feel like the focus is right you know i just feel really interested in the stories and i like the mix of the business and the media as well but i'm glad i found it because like i said i haven't known about it as long as you've been there um so i'm glad to... yeah and we're so glad you're reading it i mean and, and you know the big uh advantage we have right now is we're free uh right. you can get our daily newsletter you can go to our site you know, Sports Business Journal, Sports Business Daily is behind a paywall, yep. a very expensive one at mm -hmm. that. So, you know what I mean? Is what you're getting from them worth that kind of money when, in fact, you know what I mean, we have, you know what I mean, the, the same information and, in fact, are beating them in a lot of other places on stories. So, you know, that's the question people are starting to ask themselves. Um, you know, uh, right now we're, we're free and we're free because – the fans love us. You know what I mean? They've embraced it. I mean, as I said, it started out with my boss, you know, uh, Adam and Russ. I mean, starting this is basically a, a college project, you know, the way like a Google or a Facebook was started. Right. And it just taken off. Yeah, and it just goes to show that people just love this part of sports, you know, and it's been, I think, undercovered for a long time. Um, I think, and maybe what they identified when they started this project, and I'm just speculating, was that, that, hey, this is a part of sports people love, and it just doesn't have the representation that, say, maybe the NBA does, or, you know, just a regular aspect of sports that there is so much content out there. This felt like a part that was undercovered, in a way. Yeah. yeah. I, I would agree, because for the last five years, I've also been a, an adjunct professor at Rutgers University, and I taught... Uh, sports media and so many of my uh, students are young 20-somethings and so many of their questions are about Stephen A. Smith and Barstool Sports and ESPN. It, it wasn't about, you know, the, the, the actual sports themselves. It was about the business of sports and what goes into it and where the money's coming from and who were the, who's uh, hot and who's cold and who's zooming who. They were fascinated by that and they still are. All right, well, I'm fascinated about it, too, so let's dig into a few different things that have been going on recently. You mentioned uh, Stephen A. Smith just there, and it made me think of Skip Bayless. 
And he was all over the place last week because he gave um, an opinion on his opinion show uh, that certainly would qualify as a hot take, I guess. You know, his opinion on Dak Prescott and his mental illness and speaking out on it. And it was certainly polarizing. And um, I think there was a lot of people out there kind of calling for his head. Uh, Fox put out a statement. They simply said that they didn't support um, the opinion. Uh, I know personally, I feel like, you know, if you if if you if you breed a guy and a show to be about opinions, uh, and just because he has one you don't like, I, I don't think that it's right to then, you know, call for his job. Uh, I think that, you know, we get a little out of control about that. But here's what I, I want to ask you about the situation. I know that. There was one month left on his contract. He makes about $6.5 million a year. Uh, They were certainly nearing or in the middle of uh, negotiations. Now, the fallout to that was record ratings. Um, So where do you think Fox and Skip stand at this point, first of all, in terms of his future as an employee there? And then I got another part more about the content itself. Yeah, it's a a great question. We were the one at Fun Office Sports a couple of months ago who uh, broke the story that Skip's contract was up this month in September. I don't think it's good. Uh, I think when you have a a talent as big as Skip Bayless, to let the contract expire rarely happens. Rarely. I mean, these people, uh, these men and women, these talents are locked up long in advance. They never get to free agency. So what I think is going on is two things. One, I think uh, COVID-19 has changed everything. I think Fox, along with a lot of people, uh, took a real financial hit as a result of the pandemic, and they're looking to shed salary. <laughs> and if you're looking to shed salary, that's you know, a big one. Yeah. Start at the top, yeah, and that's the biggest right there. Right. Uh, you know, so I think let's let's start with that. I think number two, Skip's uh, leverage would have been, hey, I'll go back to ESPN uh, with Stephen A. Smith. We've also done that story. The two of them have made no secret that they'd love to work together. I mean, they, they call each other a brother from another mother. And in fact, Stephen A. you know has publicly credited Skip with saving his career by bringing him on full time on the first take. But again, ESPN is shedding salary. ESPN is uh, taking a huge financial hit, like every other network from COVID nineteen. So using ESPN as leverage in his contract negotiations, you know, isn't really an option for Skip right now. Then you have option number three, which is the zone, which is run by two former uh, ESPNers, John Skipper and Jamie Horowitz. Well, again, the same dynamic is there. You know, the zone is not growing. In fact, it's cutting back and laying off people and sure. trying to get out of TV deals. So as somebody said to me, this is the worst absolute time for Skip's contract to come up and to expire. If you're a TV talent, you're a sports media talent, and your contract is up this year, Godforsaken 2020, it is not good news. Do you have a prediction? Do you think he stays there ultimately? And uh, you know, let me ask you this, maybe instead of that. Do you think if he doesn't stay there, it will be because of what happened here? Or do you think this was not really a factor either way? I don't think it's a factor either way. Uh, You know, look, when you hire Skip Bayless, you're paying to get on the troller coaster, right? right? Yep. He's the ultimate TV troll. 
and TV trolls are going to TV troll. In fact, I bet you, you know, if you talk to Fox and you got them in an honest moment, you, you hit somebody up there with truth serum, they probably love the attention. Yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 it spiked a huge rating. Right. Yeah. He, you know, he, he got his, his biggest rating of the year at a time when his show now only gets maybe half or even less than what Stephen A. and Max get on first hit. So, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, you know what I mean? It was success. I mean, from a personal standpoint, if you know anybody, as I do, you know, who's dealt with, you know, uh, personal depression and family losses and life and death, you're horrified. Yeah, bad take. It's said. a bad take. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's, 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 two different, it's two different things. Right. I mean, as to what happens, boy, you know, I think anything can happen. I mean, I really do. Uh, my guess, uh, is, you know, if I was to put a guess and I wouldn't lay my house on it, is he re-signs at no raise. Okay. Stays flat. Right. Because yeah. when they were negotiating with Whitlock before this, they came back to Whitlock. His contract was also expiring. They said, okay, you know, we're not going to give you five years. We'll give you two years or one year or whatever it was at no raise. And Whitlock said, no, thanks. So what I think could happen with Skip, I mean, we talked about all these various doors closing, his various options. I think there's one door that's still open, and it's increasingly open for people uh, in this business. Just go on their own. Right. And Whitlock went to outkick with Clay Travis. That's what he ultimately right. decided. Yep. Whitlock bet on himself. Yep. You know, he went to outkick with uh, Clay Travis. And now he's going great guns. I've never seen the guy uh, write so much. I mean, he's just, yeah. he's on fire. Uh, you know, people like Joe Rogan, Dave Portnoy, Clay Travis, you know, Ben Shapiro, they've gone on their own. They've bet on themselves and their own talent and set up their own thing, you know, through podcast, you know, exactly what you're doing, through podcasts and in their own networks. So that's an option that I'm hearing a lot of people start to take a look at. And yeah. it would not surprise me to see skip choose that option if he feels uh unappreciated or disrespected by his bosses at fox you know and i think the other part of that skip bayless story plays in a little bit to why so many people are choosing to go out on their own you know the the political climate is what it is you know the the rise of quote-unquote cancel culture you know i remember as a huge howard stern fan back in the 90s I remember the, these uh, parent groups and these religious people would come after the Stern show. You know, he would say something and they would, you know, call the uh, FCC on him. They would organize boycotts. They would harass his sponsors. And the thing that Howard would always say is these people aren't listeners. You know, they're agitators and, you know, they they are going and they're trying to to uh, hurt and affect me where the people who listen and my listeners, you know, are still listeners. And he would, he's like, you know, I'm going to start to worry when it's those people that I'm offending. Now, you know, the pendulum has swung all around the way here in 2020, um, where it seems to be the other side of the political aisle in most cases are the ones that seem to be organizing and harassing. Not always, uh, but it just seems like this tactic has grown in the internet era. Um, and, Again, I don't think it was the viewers, like you said. People who watch that show, they know that Skip is going to be a troll. And if they think that he crossed the line there, maybe they will turn the channel. And if the the people who watch that show 
um, feel like he crossed the line and they do take a stand and they do walk away, uh, then Fox, I think, would have a good reason to uh, re-examine their, um, their business relationship with him. But I think as long as companies like Fox uh, and any other one are bowing to the pressures of people um, on the internet and on Twitter uh, and taking that out on their talent, more and more talent, I think, is going to walk away and try to create their own environment where they can't be suspect, you know, they can't be in the line of fire from a boss based on an outside agitator. Any opinion or thought on that? I, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, it's freedom, baby. Yep. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, you take a look at uh, even a guy like, you know, Deion Sanders, right? Uh, he just jumped the bar stool. Do you think Deion Sanders, an NFL Hall of Famer, Deion, Deion, primetime, would have went to a place like Barstool three, four, five years ago? No. Nope. Never. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it gives him freedom. And, and the one freedom that's the most important thing to an opinionist, like a, a Whitlock, is the ability to say whatever they want. I mean, I, I remember when I did the Deion Sanders story, I talked to uh, Whitlock about it. He said, you know, people like him almost have no choice anymore. Uh, you know what I mean? The networks are so cowardly and so afraid of cancel culture, yep. of a Twitter mob coming to them, that you know they have to go someplace where uh, you know they feel like they can say what they they can say what they feel, where they can be honest. And, and I'll read you the quote: "They made it virtually impossible to be honest at the major networks." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you are in the business of opinions. The only way that works is if you're honest. If you're not, people read through that in a second. You know what I mean? Like you have to be, you know, you have to be authentic in that. You have to at least believe, you have to at least believe what you're saying on your own, you know, or or trick yourself into believing it. You know, if you're not honest in that, it just doesn't work. So I totally understand. Yeah, you have to be an Academy Award winning director if you're going to be a top opinionist. Yep. And you don't believe what you say. Right. I know. I've met Skip. I've met Stephen A. I've sat down with them for hours. I've interviewed them. Believe me, these guys are not any different from what they are on the air. What you what you see on the air is what you get. You know that is their personality, and that's why it cuts through. I'm not a huge fan of these shows. You know, I don't really watch first first take. Um, whatever Skip show is called. I don't watch them that often. I, you know, I'll see a clip come through my feed or whatever. Undisputed. Yeah, undisputed. Okay, yeah. Um, but I will say this. I did see a clip of Skip on whatever Bill Riley's doing now. I'm not sure what it is or where it is or what it's called. But he was on the show sort of debating um, what's going on in the NFL right now. And it was a great 10 minutes or whatever they did together. And I thought, say what you want about Stephen A. Say what you want about... Bill O'Reilly, but unbelievable discourse here that these two guys didn't uh, didn't agree on everything in the conversation, disagreed on plenty, uh, but one said, hey, this is what I think. The other one said, okay, fair enough. This is what I think. They went back and forth like that, and I just thought, wow, we do need more of this. You know, it, it was a really honest, and I give a lot of credit to, to Stephen A, really, for doing that because I'm sure not everyone who's a fan of Stephen A was that happy with Stephen A going on to Bill O'Reilly's show and doing that. Yeah. yeah. And, and you look, I'm not like most of the sports media. You know, it's become fashionable, uh, you know, for sports media critics the last five years to, you know, tisk tisk and look down their nose uh, at these shows. You know, to me, you know what I mean? They're, they're sports entertainment. 
you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. I mean, I've seen some first take uh, shows and frankly some undisputed shows where I thought that the bait was terrific. Sure. And I've seen, you know, others where I thought it sucked. So, uh, you know, they're like anything else. And, and if you don't like it, change the channel. Right. Yeah, that's where I'm at on it. Absolutely. Let's talk about the ratings a little bit with the NFL. Um, they were down everywhere except Fox, right? Fox, 425 game. Correct. Breeze and Brady, great. they did a great rating, the best, I want to say, in four or five opening days, something like that. Um, down at the 1 o'clock window, you know, the Thursday night opening game was down, not as much as initially reported, but down. Um, but then really down on Sunday night and Monday night. Uh, the second Monday night game in the 10 o'clock window, I think, was 35% down, something like that. Here's what I want to ask you. Now, look, it. I think that when we're talking about football rating, it, it's a very nuanced conversation. And I think it would be naive to think any one thing uh, created this. I believe that there's many, many reasons for it. Let me ask you this question, though. It seems to me when the idea that the politics is a reason for the decline, people in the sports media business seem to work very, very hard to try to prove that it wasn't that. You know, I've never, in 2016, uh, when this emerged and the ratings declined, all I heard was how, look, it, it's not that. It's not the politics. Nope, nope. It's this, it's that. And, and and the people I've had on this show, really good friends of mine, friends of the show, worked very hard to say it wasn't that. And then the NFL turned their back on that for a little while. The ratings went back up. Now here we are embracing it again. The ratings are down. And again, I see the people in my feed, people have been on this show, in this space, working very hard to say it's not that. And it just makes me curious. Uh, I am not here to tell you that I think that the ratings are down because of politics, but I do think that politics are a reason, are one of the many reasons for the ratings decline um, this week. Tell me if I'm right or wrong and tell me what you think about my observation that it seems like people in the sports media work very, very hard for whatever reason uh, to tell us that it's not that. I think you're right. And I've been saying this since 2016. I've been one of the few people writing it. Um, I'm one of the few people tweeting it. And, you know, to me, it's a question between being a reporter and being opinionist. Now, you can have your opinion, you know, which is that politics has nothing to do with the ratings. Fine. But you also have to believe your lying eyes. And I know that in 2016, 2017, when hundreds of players followed Colin Kaepernick uh, on social justice and took a knee, that the ratings slumped uh, and slumped quite a bit, 8 and 10 percent, respectively. Then, as the protests faded uh, in 2018 and 2019, ratings, TV audiences grew 5 percent apiece. Now, you know what I mean, during this whole time of, uh, you know, social justice protests, um, the NFL has embraced this wholeheartedly, and ratings were down for the week one, say, anywhere in the area of 8 to 10%. So, you know, you could either look at the cold, hard facts, or you could just give your opinion and, you know, make the facts fit to your opinion. 
you know, I'm a reporter. I look at the facts. A couple of things. One, I'm a free speech guy. You know what I mean? As a reporter and a journalist, I'm all for free speech. I'm all for social justice. I'm all for, you know, people expressing their opinions, you know, however they want, wherever they want. I mean, that's my business, right? But at the same time, you know, you got to look at what's uh, going on and you got to look at results. Do I think, you know what I mean, this uh, increase in politics, you know what I mean, is driving, you know, down ratings? No. But do I think it's one factor? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors. I think people's viewing habits have changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think, you know, people got out of the habit of watching sports uh, and have turned to other things, you know, Netflix and streaming and, you know, uh, watching Cobra Kai or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Once you break somebody's habits, it's hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Two, and I think this is a very important factor, is just the 2016 we're in a presidential election year. So I think the cable news shows, you know, the Hannity's and the Rachel Maddow's and all these shows Tucker are siphoning a yep. lot of viewers away uh, from an NFL game because we're less than two months from a presidential election. And it's the most highly contested election, you know what I mean, in history, maybe. I mean, you know, the country seems on the verge almost of a civil war. So I, I think, you know, you, you throw in those factors and then, you, you know, you add in other factors like cord cutting and all this other stuff. You have a variety of reasons why ratings go down. Uh, at the same time, you know what I mean? You look at it, a good game, you know, a good game is still going to get eyeballs. You know, as uh, Pucci told me the other day, you know, when you look at Sunday's schedule, the one must have game. That you had to watch Breeze and was Brady. Tom Brady, yep. right? Yep, Breeze and Brady. Everybody wants to yep. see Tom Brady in a Buccaneers uniform. So, you know, and that game delivered. You know, if that game went down ten percent, I would have said, "Oh my gosh!" Sure. But to me, that showed that if, if you still have a big star and you still have a great matchup, you know what I mean? The NFL, uh, you know, packs a huge punch. And here's the other thing that you got to remember about this whole debate. You know, we could go through it week by week. Oh, the NFL is down ten percent. 10% off what? It's so much bigger than everything else. You know, they could lose 10% off their rate and still double and triple whatever anybody else does. Right, be the so highest whatever, rated show on TV still. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so no matter what happened during week one of the 2020 season, the top five shows were all NFL games. Right. But the NFL is still the gold standard. The NFL is still beachfront property. It's still Malibu. You know what I mean? It's the single most powerful and popular entity in entertainment. Not sports, but all entertainment. One thing I'll say is I noticed that there were definitely some specific markets that were way up. I know Baltimore, I think, was way up. Uh, I know the Bills got a good rating in Buffalo. You know, New Orleans always does amazing ratings for Saints games. I was wondering if maybe, to some degree, people still watch their teams, right? Like the idea of not watching your favorite team was a lot harder than people maybe thought it was. But the idea of not watching someone else's team on Monday night was easier. You know, if, you know, that these big national games were down, but the local markets still maintained their rating, or sometimes I want to say I read that Baltimore set a record or was way up, uh, you know, that maybe that's an example of that, that people tuned in for their team. And when it wasn't their team, it was easier to follow through on those promises of, you know, I'm never watching this league again or whatever, you know, um, any thoughts on that? 
What I noticed in week one was prime time really took a hit. Right. You know, I think, you know, Sunday afternoon games, everybody loves watching the NFL on Sunday afternoon. Full Sunday afternoon, there's nothing better. And, you know, just pull it up in front of the TV with your beer and your chips and watching NFL games. Primetime games are more of a choice, especially, you know what I mean, a, a Monday night game like Monday night football when, you know, you've got all these cable news shows and news programs on. Uh, against it. So what I really saw Sunday, if there's one takeaway I took from Sunday, is primetime games took a hit. Every single primetime game, and there were four of them in week one, right. was down. And a lot. You know right. I mean, some some like, you know, were, were down 5%. But as you say, you know, the ESPN, that late Monday Night Football game was down like 27%. Yeah, huge. So, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, I, I, and and you know, I, I think what we've had here is a nuanced discussion about it. You know, I think that this is a very uh, complicated factor. I mean, there's a million play, million plus people not in stadiums who are available to watch. There's also been an, a change in the way ratings are even f- factored right now. Is for the first time ever, they are considering out of home viewership. Um, so the way the number is calculated has changed. Uh, the people available to watch has changed. You know, it's a very unique year. Uh, like you said, cable news shows are up. So there's a, a ton of reasons. And anyone saying it's this one thing, I would say it's probably being naive. But I also think, I guess it was my main point, is it's also very naive and strange uh, to work so hard to say, but, oh, it's definitely not this one thing. You know, that I, I don't think it's that naive or that strange. And to me, it's well, the to say it's not, been... I, I mean, to say it's not, I think, is the naive or strange thing. You know, to work so well, hard. I mean, there's a lot, I guess. Yeah, ma- since two th- yeah, go ahead. Since 2016, you know what I mean? The the media, the sports media has almost universally you know, embraced and welcomed player protests. Right. You know, these uh, player protests of, you know, uh, are regarded as a good thing, as regarding as progress, as players finally, you know, shaking off, you know, the old Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, you know, Republicans buy sneakers thing and, you know, really uh, expressing themselves and being honest about what's going on in the country. So if you feel that way, if you believe that these players, you know, what they're doing is heroic, you're going to be, you know, have more of a tendency to defend them and to argue that what they're doing is not causing any business implications. I think it's just natural. It's the same dynamic that's been going on for four years. Okay, that's a fair point. I just think, like you mentioned, if you are, if you're, if you're, if you're still trying to be a reporter, though, you know, I think you're doing your readers a disservice to not report at least the possibility uh, that these kinds of decisions, and not just the players protesting, but you know, everything that went into getting this first week off the ground between the two national anthems and the, you know, writing in the the field and all the different things that went into it. And, you know, again, I would never be the guy to come and say, you know, the NFL went woke and now it's going broke or as they say on kick or whatever. But I do think it, it's definitely a factor. Um, I agree with you. You yeah. have to be realistic and look at the numbers. My job is to be a reporter and an analyst. You know what I mean? Not to cheerlead for one side or the other. My job is to, you know, look at the facts coldly and try to analyze what's going on. And, you know what I mean, if you look at, uh, you know what I mean, the facts, there is, you know what I mean, some questions that 
have to be raised here. There just is. Now, this is an unprecedented year in so many so many ways. Certainly the US Open, you know, started today and there's football today as well, and there's you know, a Stanley Cup playoffs game. There's so much going on and some of it is going on when it normally is. Some of it is going on at a different time. You know, some places are going, playing in front of fans. Some aren't. As you go through the rest of this year, as a reporter in the sports media and the sports business world, what are some things that you're really interested in seeing play out? What What are some things in your notebook that you're keeping track of for the rest of 2020? What is really interesting you? Like, oh, I want to see what happens with that. I want to see a couple of things. First of all, I want to see how fans navigate this clutch. Uh, you know, we were talking about all the multiple factors that could go into, you know, the NFL experiencing a ratings lost. And, you know, the one thing we didn't get to uh, is the glut of sports programs. We've never, as you said, had all these various, you know, games and playoffs on at the same time. Um, you know, we've never had, you know, the NBA finals and, September, October. You know, it just hasn't happened. We've never had the U.S. Open in September, October. The Masters, the Kentucky Derby, you know, NHL, Stanley Cup playoffs. So to me, there's going to be a real shakeout. And when you put all these properties up against each other at the same time, I think you're going to get a real cold, clear-eyed view of who likes what uh, in this country. You know, who's uh, watching what, and and I think it's going to be you know a real eye opener for people. I think too, you know what I mean. Anything with the NFL is news. You know what I mean. If the NFL suffers a ten percent audience drop uh, after two years of five percent growth, that would bring back memories of two thousand sixteen and two thousand seventeen, and you know I mean? it wouldn't surprise me to see the NFL retreat from this whole social justice uh, movement, just like they did back then. Right. Well, they've already, I mean, I think I've already read at least one network, if not two, have said they're not going to cover the anthems at all this week, right? Uh, I don't know about that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I thought I heard that. Pet, but I don't know the Right, I thought. Yeah, I, I don't know the, the answer to that question. But, see, the thing about the anthem is, Networks don't normally show it. Right. You know, they only right. It would be a return to form. Or, exactly. Open yeah. night. So the, the networks and the league have an out here, which is we're not going to show, you know, the national anthem or players kneeling. Because we never do. Right. Because we never do. Right. right. And, and yeah. we're always in commercials. So they could just go back to that. Now, when that happens, uh, and this gets back to sort of the blindness of some people in media, the, the, the amnesia. When that happens, it takes the oxygen away from the protest, right? Yep. Because if you're an athlete or a player and you're trying to protest for a social and racial justice, you want your protest to be seen, right? And if the networks don't cover it, uh, you know, I mean, there's less of an inducement to do it. And that's exactly what happened in 2018 and 2019. The networks gradually stopped covering these things, so they almost didn't cover them at all. And as a result, the player is protesting went down, 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 down until by last season, there were only a handful. Now, of course, as you said, this is a completely different year. I mean, this country is in a tumultuous period right now. We're all uh, concerned with racial justice and police brutality and the treatment of people of color. So, I mean, it could be, you know, a completely different thing. But 
you're right. The NFL and, and its TV partners do have an out if they want to to get away from covering this stuff. Right, and and you know, in fairness to them, you know, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I think that they are not, you know, they do, they do not serve to be social justice warriors themselves. You know, their business is broadcasting football games, and I think that. If they think the best way to draw a number broadcasting football games is not covering that, I don't know that. I certainly don't have a problem with it. Maybe some people will. I don't know. Yeah, I, I disagree with you on that. Okay. You know I, mean? I know they're TV partners and they paid billions to the NFL, but they're still supposed to be networks that cover the news. To me, this is news. You know what I mean? If if NFL players are going out there and you know wearing Black Lives Matter shirts, wearing the names of people killed. Uh, by police and protesting for social and racial justice. To me, that's news, and I would cover it as news. But again, I'm a journalist. Uh, you know, I believe in free speech, absolutely. So that's what I would do. Right. You know, Collinsworth got uh, took a hit on Thursday because he said, you know, hey, I'm with these guys 100%, but I'm just going to call the football game now. And it was everything that came after that. But and I'm paraphrasing. That's not a direct quote. Um, you know that that even something as I felt innocent as that seemed to draw the ire of some. So I do feel like, in a lot of sense, the networks, the announcers, um, the players. It seems like everyone is, in a way, in a no-win situation to some degree. They're never going to be able to satisfy everyone, right? Someone. Someone is going to be mad at every decision made, no matter what that decision is. They're, you're right. It, yeah. It's a no-win situation. And, and and let's face it, you know, these guys, this is not what they're there to do, right? Yes. Uh, you know, this isn't meet the press or, you know, face the nation or, you know what I mean, the CBS Evening News. They're not there to be Walter Cronkite. You know, they're there because they know football. So uh, it is a tough road for them to uh, to travel because no matter what they say, somebody's going to be offended on Twitter and somebody's going to be outraged. And, you know, all you could do in that situation, like if you're a Tony Dungy or Chris Collinsworth or Mike Tirico, is just give your opinion and, you know, and let, it, the, let the chips fall. Absolutely. Uh, Michael McCarthy is from Front Row Sports. Uh, you can find Front Row Sports. Front Office Sports. Front Office. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Looking right at it, too. Look, literally looking right at it. Uh, you can find Front Office Sports on the internet, frontofficesports.com. Uh, you can follow the them specifically at FRNT Office Sport on Twitter. Or you can follow Michael on Twitter. He's at M-M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y-Rev uh, to follow him on Twitter. Uh, you can read the columns, obviously, at Front Office Sports. Michael, you've done a little bit of everything. You've been... Um, and a bunch of different papers and media outlets. And I'm excited about this thing, Front Office Sports. And I'm excited about making the connection with you today. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's been an honor. It really has. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the time and for uh, all the candor. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, my pleasure. It's It's been a, a great conversation. And uh, we appreciate the invite. Okay. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. All righty. i
saw could use a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sitting way up high. I want to thank Michael McCarthy for making his debut, a strong debut. Always love talking about sports media, especially NFL ratings. That was fun. Book club update. Let's do it quick because we got some business on the other side of this, and that's the debut of Rick Emmett. I can't wait for you to hear it. First book, we dealt with it last week, episode 17. Jeff Benedict was on to talk about his awesome book, The Dynasty, about the uh, New England Patriots. I told Jeff Perlman it felt like a Jeff Perlman book written by someone else. If you remember the book Tiger Woods, he wrote it with Armin Katayan. That was awesome. This is just as awesome. Can't recommend it enough. I love it. And the interview with him uh, was awesome. Episode 17. Episode 19 is going to have an interview with Jeff Perlman. He is the author of Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Uh, We did that interview last night. It's awesome. I love having Jeff on. Uh, We have a unique chemistry. Sometimes I wonder if we should be doing some kind of podcast together. Although he has enough to do anyway. Doesn't need to be worried about anything with me. Uh, But that would be fun. And, uh, you know. Regardless, (laughs) uh, his book, Three Ring Circus, is awesome. It's out. Two others I want to mention as part of the book club. These interviews haven't been done yet, but they will be soon. Of course, one is called Elway. Uh, It's by an author named Jason Cole. Uh, The book is called Elway, A Relentless Life. And it made some news this week because there was an excerpt that ran somewhere uh, talking about Tim Tebow. And I think it described him as the most self-centered, humble guy ever. And uh, reading that just got me more excited about Elway. And now that I'm done uh, with Three Ring Circus, I can read Elway. And Jason will be on soon to talk about it. Also, uh, a guy named Brandon Sneed, he wrote a book called Sooner, The Making of a Football Coach. And it is about Lincoln Riley. And of course, on episode 19 uh, will be Ryan Aber to talk about Sooner's football and Lincoln Riley. And soon enough, Brandon will be on as well to talk about his book. That's the four we're working on. Dynasty, Jeff Benedict, The Interview, Season 10, Episode 17. Three Ring Circus by Jeff Perlman, The Interview, Season 10, Episode 19. And then, of course, Sooner by Brandon Sneed and Elway by Jason Cole. Interview to be determined, but soon. All right, let's do it. Let's take a break. We will be right back with the great Rick Emmett. Our next guest today is originally from Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. He was the lead singer of the rock band Triumph. Uh, He went on to have an unbelievable solo career. Uh, And he played his last show in the United States in 2018 in North Tonawanda, New York. 
His music has been an important part of my life, and he's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Rick Emmett. Hey, Rick, how you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you doing? You know, it's a special day. This is an honor for me. Uh, I was three years old in Buffalo, New York, and the first song I ever learned was Magic Power. So, <laughs> Well, that's great. Yes. Ironically, Magic Power, you know, gave me the Magic Power. It was that song that did it, you know. Is that ironic? I don't know if that's ironic. I think be... that, that was intended. It's, 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 it's Alanis Morissette ironic, right? Where, you, okay. you, you know, you can bend the, bend the use of the word a little bit. Sure, of course. You know, I w- I've been doing this podcast since 2011, and you came up in a really strange way once. I was interviewing Jeff Merrick, and somehow he started talking about playing catch with you. Um like a baseball catch on his front oh, lawn. Yeah, because yeah, you guys were uh, neighbors in Mississauga or somewhere like that. <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, what you know, <laughs> you know, Jeff. Uh, well, uh, sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> you don't want to ruin his story, right? He's uh, <laughs> he's he's on TV. He talks about hockey in Canada for Sportsnet, I believe. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, good dude, and um, you know. Whether it happened or not, he was very proud to tell well, me. Well, <laughs> you know, the thing is, I coached a lot of baseball. Right. Um, you know, when my son was coming up through the, you know, through the system. And so, and he would have pals and they, you know, so it, it's quite possible that at some point, you know. Sure. I would have been playing catch with somebody somewhere, somehow. And, <laughs> uh, you know, or hitting fly balls for guys to be shagging or, you know. Uh, training catchers to slide into screens, you know, <laughs> it was, I, I would be given a lot of odd jobs. I was more a bench coach than a, than a, a general manager. And I never got, you know, no one would ever trust me to coach third base. So I would get to coach first base occasionally. <laughs> You'd get everyone gunned out at home. If you coach third base, is that what you're saying? Too aggressive. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah I, I would, I would be sending everybody, you know, <laughs> They'd be like Guerrero the other night when he was out by about fifteen or twenty feet. Right. The Royal the Royals could have used you in Game Seven of that World Series a couple of years ago. Remember that when they they couldn't get a hit off Bumgarner, and then in the ninth they did get a hit, and they didn't send the guy, and then he probably would have been out anyway. But it's probably the only chance they had. Well, you know, I was once in a softball championship game. And I was going to be out by a country mile, and as I slid into the plate, I just kicked the ball out of the catcher's glove. <laughs> so th- there are options that exist right. where you might you might be thrown out by a lot, but you've still got a chance to maybe knock the catcher over. Right, or they make a bad anyway. throw, or you know who knows. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're trying to force the other guys to make an error. What was what is it about singers of Canadian three pieces in baseball? Yeah, that's a good question because, of course, yeah, Getty's got his uh, season. T- I think he had a son that also sort of, you know, I don't know if my, like my kid played uh, NCAA Division One right. in 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 the states. I don't know if Getty's kid went that far, but um, certainly he, I think he was a competitive ball player. And, and um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, <sighs> it's a good question. <laughs> I, I like Getty is one of those kind of guys that I mean, and I don't know him. Um, but of course we see him all the time when, when we watch the broadcasts and he, he's often sitting there and he's, he's keeping score. Like he's one of those guys that, right. you know, keeps his own scorecard so, so that he can, I guess, you know, 
relive the games or something play by play by play. But, and I was never really like that. You know, I mean, I coached. So to me, it was always about having to be sort of in the game uh, and, and watching it f- from sort of the perspective of it, the flow of the game and, and uh, the options that were. So, you know, I never kept scorecards or any of that stuff. You know, I mean, occasionally I'd have to count pitches or something. But Eddie Vedder does that too, keeps score at the baseball games. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you know, he's often in those seats like Getty, you know, for a Cubs game right. or whatever, sitting down with Theo Epstein or whoever at the World Series, and I always see him with, yeah. his, with his scorebook. Your son played nice. D1 baseball. My brother played D1 hockey at Yale and actually won a national championship. And, oh, that's lovely. Yeah, and I think people don't realize, like, how hard sometimes it is. Like, I think some people don't realize how hard it is, how great of an athlete, how good of a player at your sport you are if you become a D1 athlete. I mean, that must, oh, yeah. that must have been a hell of a journey as a parent. Like, what was it like to watch? Where did your son play? He played in Central Michigan. He was in the MAC Conference. And nice. they won the championship one year when he played. Okay. Um, Went to the tournament. But he, he also he had to live through uh, Tommy John. And, oh. you know, I mean, he was. Right. So he, had a, he was a redshirt freshman. And then he he lost a season to, to Tommy John. So he, he was there like five years. <laughs> but. Uh, and and he's he's in sports journalism now. He works at Sportsnet and uh, in the highlight zone kind of manages things there. So, he, you know, he, he he didn't get drafted, but um, you know, he, and he still plays. So there's a Canadian sort of senior men's loop, uh, Ontario Baseball Association, and he. Uh, but this might be his last year. I don't know. He's, yeah. he's 31, 31 now. I think so. You know, 32. So. Well, the Mac was probably a good conference as a parent because there's a lot of games you could drive to, really, right? UB and the games in Ohio and all over Michigan. Probably is a good, yeah, good conference. Yeah, we would that. drive. And the, the, sometimes there would be things where, uh, like, they would play against even uh, Buffalo was in the conference the last couple of years. And so there would be games and we could just drive down and and uh, catch a game, you know, a weekend in Buffalo yeah. to, to see them playing down there. But, um, no, I, I was good. Yeah, you know, we would go up there. I would say, you know, maybe four weekends uh, uh, during the season, and then if you know if they made the playoffs, maybe there'd be a trip for that as well. But sure. uh, yeah, it was it was good. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, to be a baseball dad. The other thing too, of course, is when you've coached, and a lot of the dads did coach their kids, right? So you know, you'd be able to hang out with all these other dads in the stands and have these, you know, fairly interesting and in-depth kinds of conversations about baseball with the other dads because they, they don't coach too, you know, so everybody understood the game at least to a certain level, you know, which is not to say that the coaches and managers of the uh, <laughs> the school teams would sure. would care. <laughs> you know, <laughs> on parent days where they go, like, well, I don't really want to talk baseball. Let's just uh, let's talk about your son's academic career. Yeah, he's doing great. Right. They didn't want the second guessing. <laughs> yes. Well, and and they know that every dad is doing it, right? <laughs> sure. Coach or not. Yeah, coach or yeah, not. Exactly. Yeah. You, you mentioned Buffalo, and I wanted to ask you, because growing up here, I know that this has always been a great market for Triumph. And I know, you know, I know Rush kind of got their break in the States in Cleveland, and if I got it right, I think Triumph really got a big start in Texas. Um, but Buffalo is always a, a great market. Well, really for any Canadian band, whether it's the Tragically Hip who can play arenas here, you know, or used to play arenas here. God bless, Gord. 
Um, yeah. You know, or Our Lady Peace, or you know, you go all the way down through through generations of music, and Buffalo has always been a great market for Canadian bands. What was it about Buffalo? Um, do you think that not only for Triumph but also for Rick Emmett for years and years and years uh, was such a great support system for your career? Well, it was proximity. You know, it was it was within driving distance, and you know, so even from the early days. I mean, the when I joined Triumph, you know, I was kind of the junior partner. The other two guys had a had a plan, you know, and part of their business plan was, you know, we're going to get into the states as soon as we possibly can. So. Yeah, at the same time that we were trying to play bars in southern Ontario, it, it you know it was like no no let's get you know uh, work visas and let's go across and let's play Niagara Falls New York or let's play Buffalo and so Buffalo caught on we would play you know they're not around anymore but we'd play McVans and and you know these these clubs that that you know they and they would have bands six nights a week so you know you, you could pick up a a night here or there. And even after the gig, you could still drive home, you know, so it wasn't right. too bad. Um, but, and yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think part of it was just the, the, uh, the appeal of the dollars. American dollars were always worth more than Canadian. So right. it was like you were always making like 15 or 20% more, uh, you know, by going and playing in, in the States. But, I mean, really, in the end, all things boil back down to radio airplay. So, you know, we would get solid uh, radio airplay all the way across upstate New York so that, you know, and in the early days we would go down and play bars, but then, you know, the next level we could go and play the war memorial auditoriums in Rochester and Syracuse. And, you know, so we could go across the top of the state. And so then it was always this touring thing where you could always count on being able to route yourself the trucks on their way over to the East coast, you know? So yeah, we, you know, we loved it. And, and we would play Albany and, and, uh, geez, you know, Syracuse, uh, Rochester. Yeah. I'm trying to think of all of the, there, there was Glen Falls was sure. the place we would yeah, play. The Finger Lakes. There was an arena there, a hockey rink. Yeah. It was a pretty low ceiling, but you know, still <laughs> anywhere with an yeah, AHL it, or it, NHL arena, right. Or, or something that resembled it. Yeah, and of course, you know, in this day and age, you know, now, well, not in these COVID times, but, you know, sure. uh, in these, like from a jock point of view, there's more and more money that gets uh, invested in lower levels of things. Like, you know, with the, with the Jays playing at the Buffalo Stadium this year, that's had a huge upgrade. So there, there is a level that if you were a rock band going out now, you can find... You know, secondary arenas like that. We used to play in uh, London, Ontario, and it was an old, dingy arena, you know, and yeah, now they've they got that something. Beautiful, that, yeah. Oh, it's yeah, amazing. Pearl, I've it's, seen Pearl Jam there. At that OA, it's an OA, a beautiful OHL arena. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they, that, and, so, and they're in Hamilton and London, and, you know, there's nice arenas. Mm-hmm. Barry has a nice one. Uh, you know, so, I mean, back in the day when we played them, it was kind of like... It reminded me of when I was in high school and we used to go play, you know, Saturday night hockey, rent the arena at, you know, two in the morning, George Bell Arena in Toronto, and it would be like, you know, concrete dressing room, the stink of guys' hockey bags, you know. And when so when Triumph would go out and play at gigs, it was very similar, you know, right. you were playing, you know. However, that's, uh, it's a different world now. I remember talking to my dad about this a little bit, that, like, 
you know, when I first started loving music, I loved the bands that he showed me, you know, Triumph, Bad Company, Rush, Led Zeppelin, like whatever, on the classic rock radio stations. And then when Pearl Jam and Nirvana came and Soundgarden, I had my scene now, you know, like my bands uh, that I could call my own. And then when I got a little older, the, you know, 90s Canadian alternative, late 90s, you know, like Our Lady Peace and Moist and the Tea Party, then I felt like I had a scene. You know, and my dad was saying that one reason he always thought that Triumph and Rush and Canadian bands were so big here was for that same reason that you felt like you were part of that scene, like that they were part of the the music scene in Buffalo, even though they weren't technically. But, you know, it felt that way. You know, he's like, I could spend four or five days and see one of those bands in five markets within an hour and a half of my house. You know, so it always, yes. they always felt local, even though technically they weren't, you know. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's a hard thing to sort of pin it down, but I think any, you know, you're talking about sort of um, time and demographics. You know, uh, as as everybody reaches a certain age, then there's a certain thing that's kind of ha- happening demographically. And of course, when you're in a band that rises from being local to being regional to then being national, and in Triumph's case, you know, eventually even international. You, you, uh, you know, for me, I, I got to see that local, regional kind of thing happening in lots of places, and you realize, oh, I'm part of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you think about the Golden Horseshoe, like it's it, everybody's kind of growing up with the same kinds of circumstances, you know. The the cities kind of have the same urban industrial kinds of of um, situation so you know it's not unusual for like a band like rush to break out of cleveland because cleveland has a lot in common with buffalo and toronto and chicago and detroit and And it was working man that spoke to the city right they were the working men you know they fell exactly right yeah and so then the the other thing of it is is also sort of you know uh you know and I, i mean i don't mean to get waxed too spiritual, but there is this element of of the human spirit. So people are growing up and, and they're they're reaching for something. There's an ambition that exists. There's a there's a take on the way that the world functions, you know. And I mean I can remember being, you know, uh ten years old and seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and thinking, okay, you know, this is what the world is all about. At ten years old you're going, okay. And the the world was changing for everybody uh, at that time, especially my age, all the boomers, because this Beatlemania thing was happening, you know. So I think there's something that to be said about that sort of kind of cultural, spiritual energy, and bands are right at the heart of that, you know. Um, so yeah, you know, you're lucky in a, in a sense that you, you for first you get exposure from your dad, and then you get these other bands coming along, and you know they have their own. I, I used to say to people all the time, a kid comes into grade nine, and in, in Canada, they used to have grade 13, so it was a five-year trip through through sure. high school. And by the time the, the, the guys are and girls are heading out the door from grade 13, the people that are coming in for grade nine, they're going to have a different take on what their pop culture is, their sort of spiritual animus, you know, this stuff that they're after. It's going to be different, right? So, but... Uh, as I was experiencing my career, 
I saw that number shrinking. It wasn't five years anymore. It was like more like three, sometimes even two. Like things like MTV started to really hasten that process. It would turn over so quick. So by the time a kid's in grade eleven, they don't want anything to do with what the kid in grade nine is doing, you know. Whereas when I was a kid, you know, we're watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and my grandmother's watching, and my parents are watching, and there's only three channels on the TV, anyways. Okay. You know, like different different kind of universe. Right. Well, I guess that's why, you know, the number one album now doesn't sell. Well, now it's a different reason. But as it got, you know, later along, you know, maybe a number one Beatles album would sell so many more because it was cross generational. It didn't take as many albums later to be number one. I don't know. Um, Yeah. Oh, it's true. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned kind of, you know, spirituality a little bit. And it's probably a good time to kind of bring up the lyrics of Triumph. And I know you've talked about this a little bit on this this kind of press tour that you're doing for the solo albums, and we'll talk about them as well. But, um, you know, I was thinking about some of the music that, like I told you about that kind of evolution as a fan where, you know, finally it was like my music. And I think about this Time Magazine cover that uh, had Eddie Vedder on it, and it said, like, all the rage, you know, bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden give voice to the passions and fears of a generation. And, you know, that was... The, that was the way I guess those bands chose to accept you know chose to express themselves and I bought into it a million times over right like but sometimes I would get overwhelmed and I would put in triumph because I just needed to remember that there was a good fight to be fought you know that I sometimes just I sometimes despite loving all the rage as time time magazine put it I often needed to go back to the comfort that was the positivity and, you know, the pureness of triumph and the message of triumph. And I heard you talking about that a little bit on some of the interviews you did with Eddie Trunk or whomever. And I wanted to just kind of share that experience with you and kind of just wonder, like, was there any strategy to that in a way? Or was it just more just the way you wanted to express yourself? Or did you kind of see that, like, People are going to always need to feel this way. So let's make music that will help them feel this way. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, let me say you put a smile on my face, you know, because it, it's always lovely to hear that, that, that the music, you know, had that kind of value in people's lives because that was one of the things that I hoped for. Well, you know, when you talk about, you know, was it, like a conscious strategy or I think it was, you know, in the, in the beginning I had instincts, but I didn't necessarily have, you know, strategy. <laughs> you know, right. Like I just wasn't, Fair. I wasn't old enough or smart enough <laughs> to, you know, to, but I was joining a band that was called triumph. And so, you know, the other guys sort of saw it more as well. It's going to be this, you know, heavy metal, power trio, giant production, you know, that was what they envisioned. And then, you know, by the time I was starting to flex my own muscles inside the partnership, and that would have been probably the Just a Game album, which had Hold On and and Lay It on the Line. And, you know, that was kind of the thing that really established the band's identity beyond the fact that we'd had a hit with, uh, you know, the Rocky Mountain Way, Joe Walsh tune. Right. Um, you know, but, but, uh, and, and, you know, before that, we'd sort of been an FM AOR kind of band, but, but hold on and lay it on the line kind of 
you know, crossed us over and got us on the billboard charts and all that stuff. And, and I was thinking, okay, you know, this band can have uh, an identity and I can be the one that can give it to them. And, um, you know, I can write songs that are about this, this kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, this, the, the roots of this stuff goes back a long way. You know, I was a seven year old kid and my mother would drag me off to uh, choir practices at the church. And so, you know, I'm singing in church choirs, the whole idea of anthems and, and hymns and, and, you know, that that's a part of my musical DNA, you know. And even as I got older and, you know, was losing my religion, I still had this kind of very deep sense of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a humanism, you know, uh, that I wanted to make sure that when I was standing up in front of a bunch of people, and I would tell this to my college students all the time, try and offer people something that money can't buy. Like, try and go beyond just the commercial pop kind of thing that's going on and see if you can't make whatever work you're doing have a deeper value, you know, um, so because that's going to give it legs. That's the thing that'll give you, you know, a, a career that can last longer um, because you're going to have sort of qualities and values there that, that are going to be, they're not just going to be about the moment. Like you talk about the, the Time Magazine cover, and obviously, a magazine is going to be talking about what's topical and, right, and, and yep. you know, it, you know what's happening. Like, okay, so there, it's a cultural kind of mirror that they're holding up in a short-term way. But you know, the thing that sort of makes Nirvana and 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 Soundgarden and 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 you know uh, Stone Temple Pilots to a certain degree and certainly Pearl Jam last is because they would have songwriting values. You know, there was stuff in there that it wasn't just talking to the times. It was talking about all people at all times, you know, and that's what good that's what good art does. You know, it, it has a kind of a classic uh, uh, intention. <laughs> sure. Well, let me ask you about a few pieces of the art specifically. We mentioned Fight the Good Fight, and I heard this kind of story that made me laugh once about Sammy Hagar recording dreams and he was talking about how he kept singing like this he thought incredible take and the producer I can't remember if it was Templeton or whoever it was that time for Van Halen kept like saying like no you can do that better and he said there was the one part at the end he you know I don't know if this is rock legend or not but he said it that he was literally squeezing his testicles you know to get his voice that high and like squeeze those notes out and I was listening, I had heard that, and then I was like randomly listening to Fight the Good Fight, like, you know, a little bit later. And there's that incredible, you know, vocal part, you know, that like, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I know in the later times, you haven't even tried to replicate it on stage. But, you know, that part, and I thought, you know, I should ask Rick, like, you know, not necessarily that he was, if he was squeezing his testicles or not, but like, do you remember <laughs> recording that, that vocal? part there and like what it was like to get that i mean it's one of the most impressive i think rock and roll you know lyric beds ever just the way you get to that point um i don't know do you remember recording that at all or anything about that i do yeah, yeah of course no yeah. i you know i have strong memories of and you know um i was telling somebody in an interview the other day about you know fight we actually had two different vocal takes for the choruses because 
Gil wasn't keen on the on the hook fight the good fight. He thought it was maybe too biblical, and so we had a version of the choruses that was every moment, and then we had another version that was you know with the fight the good fight stuff. And I think you're you're probably talking about the double chorus out, like the yep. second chorus. Mm-hmm. I go really really high, and yeah. there's a line in there like every moment of your lifetime, which is way up there. It's like. You know, yeah. the concert D's going to going to F's. You know, like, um, and I think I even hit a G, like, you know, in that. And I mean, I have a hard time doing that an octave down from that now. Like that's, you know, because that's that's the way life works. You know, but you know, back in the day, that that was sort of one of the things that I prided myself on was that I could hit those notes. And there weren't too many singers that could. I mean, we were once on on tour and, and opening for uh, Journey on some arena show or stadium shows. We would play the Rose Bowl with with Journey and Wow. And uh, and you know, Steve Perry said to me, "Man, are you singing like high Fs?" And, and, and are you? I go, "Yep." He goes, "Oh my God, you're 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 out of your mind." You know. <laughs> and, and Perry's all right, like, right? When, so <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah, when a guy like Steve Perry yeah. is is you know telling you, "Hey, you know, you're you know." You can really sing high. It's great. I, you know, there is. A, I have a slight amount of, of regret that I, I worried about it a little too much. Like if I had sung, you know, like a, a musical fourth or, or or even a fifth lower than that, um, the songs probably would have had a little bit more universality. But because I was singing them so high, like. I can't tell you how many times guys that, you know, played in bar bands or, you know, whatever, or guys that play in garage bands, and I'm at a meet and greet, and they'll say to me, well, we try to do your stuff, but nobody can sing it. Right, so, can't you know, do that we, one. We can't really do it. And I think, yeah, you know, if if I'd had a little bit more sort of common sense, <laughs> but, you know, there's that whole thing of, uh, but there's a part of rock, which is also a, like, it's like virtuosity. You're kind of going like, all right, I, you know, I'm going to do this because I can. And, you know, you were saying about Templeman saying, no, you can do it better. Like, there there, there was always that sort of jock athletic thing about the performance of, of classic rock was like, you know, you were going to be able to maybe do something that somebody else couldn't. And maybe that's one of the reasons why, say, a band like Rush, you know, there was a lot, there was an awful lot of a jock mentality going on there. That drummer was doing stuff, and it was so that all the air drummers of the world were going to go, okay, geez, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta be like this guy. Well, sometimes they couldn't even play their own stuff, right? Like they tell that story in all the world's a stage about trying to play, um, Strangiato all the way through on their own and to record it. And eventually like, nah, we got to do it in parts. You know, it's too hard. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that, that the studio allows for. And then, you know, now, especially the digital universe, it's like, yeah, you don't have to be able to get from A to Z. You, you can break it all up, and you, uh, and I mean, even great, great virtuoso musicians like Glenn Gould, he would do it in order to try and capture, you know, the most amazing, uh, you know, takes of of certain chunks of the of the thing, in 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 a much more uh, <laughs> pedestrian kind of way. Guys like me, you're just trying to edit it together so that you can get you know one decent take, and then you can memorize it and go, okay. Now that I've got the take together, I, you know, I can learn it so that I can play it live, you know. So I see yeah. your, I see your point about the cover bands and things, but I think you made the right choice because 
There is not a time that goes by, if I'm able, when I'm listening to Fight the Good Fight, that I don't go back at least two or three times to hear you sing that double chorus through again. Because it just, <laughs> you know, it just, I, I think sometimes when someone, maybe in music sometimes, when I hear someone do something so incredible like that, it almost makes me feel like it's more important for some reason. It's probably not, but it, it makes me feel that way. You know, like... This is the yeah. most important part here. I got to hear this again. It's he did the best here. It was a, there's a reason, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, maybe it's you know same thing like uh, well, they would run the uh, the bumper for a coach's corner and they would have this the thing where Bobby Orr is getting taken down and right. he shoots the puck backwards and it yeah. goes in the net, you know. Or, and I think Ovi's done that a couple of times. Like there is this thing of of uh, again that sort of virtuosity that this thing where you go like wow that's like that's like historic right you know, that's, that's epic thing. you know yeah. and so you know uh, I mean when I was a kid there were bands like Led Zeppelin sure and you know you'd hear the, the like when Led Zeppelin one came out I thought okay that that album is just pure unadulterated sex <laughs> like it's just so epic you know. And so that that's I guess part of the culture is that you kind of go well, you're striving for for the you know those moments, um, and I, and it, you know I agree with you in the sense that uh, you know I I can look back on it now and I can go okay well, th- this was me in my glory you know, the glory of my youth is the glory of my sort of you know trying to do things that. You know, uh, not too many other people could do. And then, of course, now that I'm 67 years old, and you look back, you go, "Yeah, who was that guy?" Because <laughs> I don't even, I don't even remember that guy anymore. You know, holy cow, you know. Um, but it, it, and so, but it's a nice thing to have, you know, to, to be able to say, "Well, that's who I was." You know, I mean, when I was a kid, and you know, to stay on this jock thing. Um, the summer I was 16, I turned 16, I ran in the police games in Toronto. I was a sprinter. And um, the police games would have guys from the Legion, you know, being the time the timekeepers and the officials, you know, guys with the stopwatches and stuff. And so they, when I ran, the, the I won the 100 uh, yards at the time, 100-yard dash, at, when a time of 10 flat. Mm. And... I'm sure it was because the guy from the Legion was a little slow <laughs> on the uptake, and probably, you know, was was a little quick as I was hitting the tape, you know. So, sure. but it, it made the papers, you know, and it got the clipping. So the track coach at my high school, when I came back in the fall, he said, "Oh my God, you know, that's that's a school record." So they had a board on the hallway down to the gym that had you know school records. And so my name got to go up on the board, you know, the 10 flat, 100 yards. And then the next year, they changed from yards to meters. Oh, no. And so <laughs> no one was ever going to be able to take away my right. record. That's sweet, yeah. Yeah. You know, because because I'd, I'd run this 10 flat, 100. Now, I can't even run, you know, up a set of stairs now. <laughs> you know, my knees are so bad and, you know, but... You know, you can't take it away from me, man. I got the school record. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like that, that Pearl Jam story with the verses. They sold, I think, 975,000 copies in the first week, and it was a, a record. And then Billboard changed, you know, how they track first week sales. So they'll always yeah. have that, you know, sort of like that. Uh, the um, uh, 
Suitcase Blues, you know, I've seen you in so many different venues and so many different gigs over the years, and it's always nice when that's the end of the show. You know, there's just like a certain comfort in that to me. Like, I feel like it ends right when it's that song, and you've talked about it and how special it is that the guys kind of indulge you, let you get that on the end of the record, and um, I've always loved it. But I also love the kind of sequel to it. Or I think you sort of said it's sort of a secret to it on the solo record that you did a few years ago. And then the guys from Triumph helped you and um, Grand Parade came and is on that album. I just love that track. And we always, I always hear you talk about Suitcase Blues, but I haven't heard you talk as much about that one. And do I have it right that in your mind it was sort of a sequel to that? Or like, tell me a little bit about that that track. And and because we've heard you talk about Suitcase Blues. So how about that one? Yeah, there was a guy out of Pittsburgh named Jim Potolsky, and he got in touch with me and sort of said, hey, you know, I used to have some management uh, association with Dream Theater, blah, 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 you know, been around. And, I, you know, I'm kind of doing some A&R stuff for this uh, European label mascot. And, uh, you know, would you like to do a rock record? And, you know, I think we can put a deal together and... and uh, so he kind of, in the early stages, was A&Ring me on the project. And then it became quite clear that he was trying to push me to get guests. He wanted to have guest artists play on this thing. And, you know, the budget was what the budget was. I mean, it was it was generous, but it wasn't, you know, uh, unbelievable. Sure. And it certainly wasn't infinite. Uh, so, you know, over time it sort of became, well, I, you know, life's in lips close so I can get Alex from, from Rush. Uh, the guy that sings for Dream Theater, uh, you know, I can get him down and he can, he can do some vocals. Um, and, and then it was like, well, no, now personally I was going, do I want to spread it too thin? I don't. I kind of want to make sure that, you know, just from the, for the integrity of the music point of view, you know, the album will will be a band thing with the guys that I tour with and the guys that I, you know, can rehearse with and pre-production and all of that. You know, I wanted it to have an integrity. So, but, uh, you know, he kept sort of pushing me, uh, this guy Patulski, you know, hey, you know, uh, Mr. What, what about what about the guys from Triumph? What about the guys from Triumph, you know? And so I had that tune and I, I'd written, you know, mostly rock bluesy kinds of, tunes for the record but i this one was kind of more of a very much like a suitcase blues kind of like a jazz blues kind of a tune and um so then you know the idea started forming in my head plus i was i was going to record the album at metalworks at gill studio so you know um i thought you know i could maybe get sneak gill in for an afternoon and he could maybe you know and don't have to do it all at once and get levine in to play bass one day you know right so, um, and the tune wasn't, you know, it, it's not crazy demanding. And those guys don't necessarily tour and play anymore. I, this was 2016. Uh, so, you know, it was it was kind of a big ask, you know, to say, hey, you know, will you guys, you know, get out your instruments and, <laughs> you know, get yourself back in shape to be able to play through a tune. So, uh, but they, they were very gracious about it. And, uh, and the song itself was, you know, the lyric of the tune is talking about watching the ball, you know, uh, descend in the new year and all of that, you know, 
and and waxing nostalgic and all of all of that sort of thing. So it really felt like it was for sure in the tradition of suitcase blues, an album closer kind of tune, you know, mm. and uh, so the mood of it and everything. And and I thought the guys did a nice job. Like Gil did a very, you know, in typical Gilmore fashion, you know, it was very much his own kind of part. You know, he, he didn't, like I had a demo of it where Paul DeLong, my drummer, had played on it. And, you know, Gil calls me and says, like, I, don't, I really don't want to play, you know, what he played. I want to play my own thing. And I said, yeah, sure, you know, do your own thing. Like, absolutely. So, you know, that's what happened. <laughs> and it was, it's great, you know. And I really do feel like, you know, I don't know if it'll be the last thing that Triumph ever records, but certainly, given the circumstances, it might have been at right. the time. And it would it be kind of a- had a feeling like maybe this will be the last thing we do together in a studio. And I felt like, well, you know, there's something I don't know righteous about all of that, the vibe of that. But I don't know. I mean, there's this whole thing going on now with Roundhill, where you know right. they're putting out yes. my old catalog, and then they're they're going to do a Triumph box set in 2021. And so there's all this new. There's going to be a, a, I think, a Triumph tribute album that's being worked on where other artists of fairly high, you know, uh, renown are going to are going to uh, do their versions of Triumph songs. And uh, Mike Klink is kind of producing the guy that did uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, after he after he'd done Sporty Kings with was Triumph. So, you know, there's this new energy that's afoot. And, you know, who knows where that's going to lead. In the documentary. Uh, yeah, yeah, the documentary, right. yes. Yeah, Banger Films is doing this. And, that you know, uh, that's probably going to come out in 2021, early in the year, with along with the box set, I would think, or, you know, on the heels of, or, or will be the thing that leads the, the marketplace into the release of the box set or something. So... Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on, and um, so you know, there's this renewed uh, partnership again of the three of us, you know, talking yeah. on the phone and sending emails and texts, and you know, so I don't know where it might lead, but um, you know, I, I, I'm retired now, so you know, I don't really have anything that. Uh... <laughs> well, I think musicians are like boxers, you know, they never really retire, and wrestlers, you know, they never really retire; they just. There's always that possibility for one more match or whatever. But um, there's that line in Grand Parade I love. It's uh, me and I'm hanging out with Johnny Walker once again and catching up with old friends who knew me way back when. I, I, whenever I hear that, I think about you guys, your Christmas dinner you have with the guys, you know, and I just picture like being a fly on the wall at that, that Christmas dinner and you guys sitting around having a few drinks and just like talking about, you know, the days of triumph or whatever. So I've always just, oh, yeah. I just really appreciated that song and I just wanted to bring it up and mention it with you, but. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's great. I, I I'll tell you something that we've been talking about lately. I shouldn't be letting the cat out of the bag. Don't worry, no one listens. There to was this. one time we were playing, and yeah. I think it was upstate New York. Actually, we were playing some bar that I don't remember the name of, and and we would like part of our contract. It would say, you know, we don't go on until we get paid, and so you know, this and the standard thing in showbiz is, you know, the agent's got to. 50% deposit, and so you show up to the gig, and you've set up all your gear and stuff, and so now somebody's got to pay you the other 50%, and you go on and you play. And it's the only leverage in certain circumstances that you've got. Sure. 
some, sometimes you're dealing with you know club owners right. or promoters that are kind of sketchy. So sure. you know you're you're trying to leverage the money. So in truth, that's exactly what's going on in this circumstance. So this would have been I don't know 1976. It, it might have been early 77, but it's probably 76 sometime. So we're sitting in the basement, and we can hear all the patrons in the bar thumping their beer bottles on the tables, and they're, they've got this chant going, triumph, triumph, because, you know, we have, it's, it's late and we haven't come on, but it's because we're sitting downstairs waiting for our road manager to get paid. And I guess he's putting the squeeze on the club owner, and the club owner's having to go to his uh, cash registers in order to, you know, get the money <laughs> and, you know, count it all out. And, right. you know, our road manager can come and give us the high sign and say, okay, boys, you know, you can go on. So we're waiting downstairs, and I've got an acoustic guitar that I would warm up on, and we're just sitting around. And I started playing a song by the Amazing Rhythm Aces called uh, uh, Third Rate Romance. It's just like country tune, right? Sure. And Gil starts singing, and like he knows the words, which is miraculous. And so <laughs> now I'm singing harmonies, and I will never forget this moment of us sitting in this basement, you know, while the crowd upstairs is thumping and cheering, and, and we don't give a shit. We're just sitting downstairs, and we're sitting, we're singing, sitting at a tiny table in a ritzy restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, playing this country tune, you know, and singing it and just relaxing. Like, we used to play a game sometimes where it would be like, name that tune or name that riff, you know. So I'd start out easy, and I'd play like, the riff from Day Tripper or the, you know, Ticket to Ride or something, Beatles songs. You know, then eventually I'd start, you know, playing some sort of old Howlin' Wolf lick or something and see if they couldn't guess those. But, yeah, that those were the good old days. Now, we might, for the box set, try and recapture that moment. <laughs> wow. That's been, that's been one of the things that we've talked about. Like, I like hey, it. She, what if we just sat around like it was a campfire and we just, you know, did a very impromptu version of third rate romance? I mean, so, yeah. Heard it here first. Fun. The, the, Rick, yeah. I'm, Rick, I'm here on the sportscasters and I'm, I'm running out of time, I'm sure. But two things I have to mention. And the first thing is the reason he's here is not because he wanted to wake up on a Wednesday and talk to some random dude from Buffalo, but it's because he's promoting the fact that a bunch of his solo albums have recently been released on streaming services like I use Apple Music, but a lot of people use Spotify. Whatever you use are out there now. And what I love about this collection, Rick, is what I've often loved about seeing you live, and that is the great variety. Um, that is the way that you play and have um, released your art into the world. I mean, like, I know this isn't part of the release, but, you know, if you search your name on a streaming service there is the res nine you know that's like a rock record you know or there's one of the albums that you did with dung levy um did i say his name right that's not right his name dave uh who's your boy who's your boy dave dunlop dunlop dung levy why did i say Dunlevy? i meant dunlop sorry dave yeah um sorry. you know or there's you know some jazz or a christmas album or whatever just great variety and all these different things liberty manifesto is more of a a rocking one you know, all these different albums, and they're out there to stream and listen to that way, which I know people love. I still love physical when I can do it, but of course, you know, anytime I'm in the car, I just hook up my phone and can stream this stuff. Uh, are you excited it's out there? What, I, I know you've talked a lot about it, and that's why you're out and you're promoting it, but, um, you know, what, what kind of, uh, was there anything specific that 
made you want to do that? Like, you know, I know you mentioned that uh, back then you just you didn't think of this. You just put out CDs, you sold CDs, whatever. And now this is a chance to to get it in streaming. It, it, what's the response been so far? Are you excited about it? Yeah, I mean, it's been lovely. I mean, you know, it wasn't sort of my um, impetus that got it going. It was literally like Roundhill had done the Triumph catalog stuff, and then the guy that owns the thing, Josh Cruz, had, you know, he's a Rick Emmett fan, and he'd sort of said, hey, I'd, I'd like to do your catalog too. And I went, well, isn't that nice? Yeah, that's great. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's do it. So, you know, it's it's lovely in, in late in life to find somebody that's kind of going to be a patron, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's a nice thing. Um, and you, you know, you're right. I, I had never really, uh, aggressively pursued the idea of, okay, got to have this on all the digital download places and all of the streaming. And like, I would make the records and then I would have them up for sale on my, my own website. And, um, we would, you know, manufacture up enough units so that when we went out and played gigs, we could sell them at the merch table. And that was really, you know, the extent of my ambition. I was like, if I make my money back, that's great. Then I can make another one, you know. And really, I kept wanting to service my own eclecticism and my own creativity. That was really my, my uh, that, that was the ambition. Uh, it wasn't that I was looking to try and get on the charts or trying to sell thousands and thousands of these things like, you know, um, so, you know, it was nice that Roundhill sort of said, you know, we're in on this. I mean, meanwhile, I had done 18 new songs that are like acoustic guitar and voice that are on my own site, uh, and it's called Folk Songs for the Farewell Bonfire, and there's six jazz guitar pieces on there, too. So, you know, I, I sort of continue to just be creative and not necessarily get too... Uh, caught up in the whole idea of the selling and the marketing and the promotion and the, you know, but, you know, here I am on this run now of doing all of these interviews because of Roundhill's uh, ambition, which is great, you know, uh, and, and I love it. But meanwhile, when the COVID thing hit, I was writing poetry and in the, and I've uh, since made a, a deal for, with a, with a publisher for a book of the, my book of poetry to come out, and that'll probably take a year or more before that happens. But I've I've made the deal for that, and then they said, "Well, will you do a memoir?" Ooh. So I thought, "Well, I'm doing all these interviews, and you know, half more than half of it is traipsing down memory lane." So sure, I'm in the vibe for that. Okay, I'll sign up for that. So you know, now I'm going to be a published author, and and and. In addition to everything else, you know, but it's okay. It's fun, you know, like the book of poetry. I thought, well, there's a big thing about audio books now. And I go, well, I could read my poetry and play a little jazz guitar between poems or whatever. <laughs> I go, maybe I'll do that too. Maybe I'll do an audio book. So, you know, I, I, I'm always looking to be creative. And so if the business offers me opportunities to become creative, I go, well, why wouldn't I take advantage of that? I'm sure. Now I know with the the streaming stuff, it's often about rights and who owns what. And but I did notice, kind of conspicuous by its absence, was absolutely. Um, is there any chance of that ever streaming? Uh well, that's a good question. Um, okay, because you're, you're you're hitting me right where I live right now. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just making swinging a deal with uh, the Canadian company that owned the rights for the three albums 
that were on Duke Street Records. So that was absolutely ipso facto and uh, Spiral Notebook. Spiral, yeah. And so, you know, I am hopeful that if uh, you know, all the all the rights can get aligned properly, that yeah, something might happen with that stuff too. So, all right, yeah. Last thing, I promise. So, we talked a little bit about the documentary. It's coming out. I can't wait. You know, it's the same guys who did the Rush, the Amazing Rush one, and I think they have a ZZ Top one out right now. They're great at it. I can't wait to see it. Uh, and one of the cool things about it is you guys played this kind of surprise show for the hardcores of the hardcore, and you played three songs, and my, I can't wait to see it, for one, um, you know, whatever, and, and just, but what I was curious to ask you about, because I'm really into this, like, you know, when the Tragically Hit played that last show that was broadcast all across Canada, you know, one thing that was really interesting to me is, like, what are they going to choose to play last? You know, like, if they know, and I assume they did, that there was a good chance that that was it, you know, what is going to be the song that they pick to be the last one they play together? And it was ahead by a century. And I don't know necessarily that that was the same thought process here, but how did you decide, the three of you, how did you decide on the three that you chose? Which I think were laid on the line, Magic Power and one other one, right? When the lights go down. When the lights go down, yeah. How, how did you? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the first thing about that is it becomes a question of what can the band do? Okay, right. Because, <laughs> you know, one of the things was, like, I had suggestions for Gil of songs that I thought, hey, you know, what about if you sing this one? And he went, nah, I don't want to sing that. No, I, I can't really sing that anymore. No, I don't I don't want to have to try and, you know. I'm, part of it is, for, for Gil especially, to, to gear up to, to perform, like he he's not, he doesn't sit down and play his drums every day. Right. So if you're going to decide to do a little set, three songs, like, you know, it's going to be 15 minutes or so. Like there, there's a kind of a physical demand that's going to be made on him to have to sit there and do that for that 15 minutes. It's it's not simple. It's not easy. It's not as easy as playing a guitar, you know. And for him to play and sing, that was that was a real challenge. And he kind of went, well, you know, I, I, I think I want to do Lights Go Down. So that was his choice. And we said, okay, let's... We And for a couple of tours, maybe even three tours, that was our opening number. Okay, we yeah. would open the set with Lights Go Down. Because it, it, the, you know, the lyric is saying, you know, when the house lights go down and the show starts, you yeah. know, we're we're Perfect. ready to light the we're ready to light the fuse. Yeah. So you know, we went okay. So that that'll be the one we open with, and then, you know, the the sta- the biggest evergreen song of Triumph's life is laid on the line. So got to do that. So that's going to be the next song, and then, okay, what becomes the definitive? Uh, statement for triumph, you know, and there was a toss up. Was it going to be fight or was it going to be magic power? And in the end, just because of the, you know, the magic power of the music, yeah. the fans being there, the fact that it was going to be maybe more of a sing along chorus, you know, f- for the fans. And I think Banger Films kind of was leaning, I mean, they might have had a, you know, I mean, they didn't get to choose, but they probably had a voice in the discussion and sort of said, "Hey, no magic power, wow, yeah, that'd be that'd be a powerful thing, you know, blah sure. blah blah." So you know, that was that was what led us to those those choices, and um, 
Yeah, in that order. Wow, yeah. thank you for that. That's amazing. Okay. The, uh, you know, I think you guys made the right choice, just because I'm such a huge Magic Power guy. And it was interesting to hear you say that you think, and I'm sure you're right, but that you think that laid on the line is the, you know, the main... Because I would always think it's Magic Power, but maybe that's just because I love it so much, but... Well, you know, I mean, part of this, and I mean, I hate to sound, um, you know, just mercenary and, and uh, you know, commercial, but the fact of the matter is, as as radio formats keep shrinking and become more and more computerized and digitized all the time, uh, Lay It on the Line gets played because it's actually a shorter song than Magic Power. Right. So they pick the shortest one, you know, Fight the Good Fight doesn't get anywhere near as much play, Hold On doesn't get anywhere near as much play. Because they're they're longer, you know, and so I think Lay It comes in around four thirty or something. So they go, oh, okay, you know, let's let's do that one. It's not like back in the day where the DJs needed a song to take a piss to, you know. So they like I think Freebird is as big of a hit, not just because it's great, but also because it was like eight minutes long, so the DJ could go, you know, go to the bathroom <laughs> and smoke a cigarette. Listen, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> when. The, the FM disc jockeys would put on the whole side of a Pink Floyd album. You right. Know? Yeah. Well, let's play twenty one twelve. We'll play the whole first side, and uh, you know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, his girlfriend came to visit when that when that went on or whatever. Yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> all right. Uh, the sportscasters. Uh, listen, I've had the honor here for probably longer than he ever hoped to uh, talk to Rick Emmett. And Rick, I gotta say that <laughs> I just have to say thank you because you know. Man, how do I want to put this? Just that, you know, you've been a part of my emotional, physical, and life with all these years without knowing. You know, I was just one of the faces in the crowd who really took a lot from what you did. Um, you know, whether it be with my relationship with my dad or my uncle or whatever. So, thank you. And thank you for doing You're this. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for doing I, this. You know, I, I appreciate the getting to hear it. And, and getting to feel it, it's, it's, you know, that, I mean, there's obviously a lot of emotion in, in, um, the, you know, family history and, and music is the thing that, you know, I used to tell students all the time, look, m- music is going to show up in weddings. It's going to show up in funerals. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Music is a part of life, you know, and it always will be. So if you can figure out a way that the music that you make becomes the music that's the soundtrack of people's lives, then, you know, you've, you've really provided something of value. And I mean, I mean, in the old days, and when I say old days, I'm talking about guys like Handel and Mozart and, you know, those kind of guys, they would, they would get uh, hired by a, they would be like servants and part, they would wear servants livery and they would, uh, you know, have housing provided by whoever was the patron that was paying for the food on their table. And they would have to write music for every Sunday's church service and for special events when it was the birthdays and the, the family's things, or they were going to have a, another, you know, family of nobility visiting from another, you know, coming in. So, okay, well, we're going to have to have a, some introductory music for when the emperor of, you know, whatever shows up. So that's what they would do. They would be commissioned for those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, uh, it's kind of a lovely thing when I, when I get to talk to people and, and do interviews and, and, and I, I get to hear from people that where they go, no, no, you're a big part of my life, you know, like that. 
it, it really mattered to me that that you know you made this music and and you know decided you were going to share it with the world. So, I mean, that that's a that's a nice thing to get in somebody's lifetime. Like for me to be able to get this opportunity, making the rounds and talking to people and get to hear these things back. It's it's very gratifying. It's very humbling, but it's 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 very gratifying too. So thank you. Well, thanks so much to you, and obviously pass it along to Gil and to Mike as well, and to poor Dave Dunlop, who I butchered his name a little bit ago. Um, <laughs> and, and you just have to make me one promise that if you ever play a U.S. show again, it's here in Buffalo, so that I can always say, you know, that I was at the last Rick Emmett show in Buffalo. And, and look, if it's got to be Cleveland or even Pittsburgh, that's okay too. But make it somewhere I can be. You know what I mean? I need. I have that under my cap right now and i want it forever all right steve all right <laughs> thank you so much uh best to you thank you really okay, thank you man. take care I want to thank Rick Emmett for being on the podcast today. I also want to thank Michael McCarthy. You can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email me. Please do the sportscasters at gmail.com. Again, thanks to Ian Ross for emailing me this week. I appreciated the uh, interaction there. If you have a chance to give the podcast a review, uh, my friend Peter Winston says it's social engagement. He says it's important. Uh, so if you can do it, I'd appreciate that. Speaking of Peter, at GF Allentown Pod is greetings from Allentown. He has a new episode up, World Class Championship Wrestling from 1983. Uh, also, don't forget my friend Adrian Dater at a Dater on Twitter. He was in the bubble in Edmonton uh, with the Avalanche until their bubble burst. Uh, we have to have Adrian on soon uh, to talk about his experience there, and I'm looking forward to it. All right, one last thing for me today, and I told you guys I have a list, right, that I go to on an app called Evernote, and... I keep track of different ideas, different things uh, that I would like to talk about on one last thing. At any given time, I usually have about, you know, 10 different ideas. And some of them never happen. Uh, Some of them do. Some of them sit there for a while because they're difficult. Uh, and, and, and one that has been sitting there for a while, it, it's, it says the legend of Paula grows nine, 25 years since my grandmother's death. And I've been avoiding that one for a while, uh, but I will be doing that one next time. Episode 19, uh, that will be one last thing I will talk about, uh, 25 years since my grandmother passed away. And reflect back on that time uh, and 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 give you an honest and heartfelt uh, discussion about my grandmother. 
which we have talked about a little bit before. Uh, for today, though, uh, for a couple reasons. One, I get to put off that hard one one more time. And two, it was just opening day. I thought about talking about my complicated relationship uh, with the Buffalo Bills. You know, being from Buffalo, one thing I always get is, how the hell are you, you know, a Saints fan in Buffalo? That doesn't make any sense. You know, as if every single person who ever grew up next to a girl his age has to fall in love and marry the girl that lives next door to him just because they're next door to him. How could you love another girl? And I've told the story, I think, at least a few times that my love of the Saints was born out of my love for the Sabres. I loved the Sabres so much as a kid that I thought my family on a Sunday afternoon in September would huddle around my AMFM clock radio and listen to a preseason game between the Sabres and the North Stars. But instead, the rest of the family was going to watch the Bills and the Dolphins. And I was so pissed off at the Bills and so pissed off at football that I didn't watch it for two and a half years. And then I fell in love with the Saints. And my dad took me to a football game in Buffalo to see the Saints play in 1989. And Bills fans threw snowballs at me. I was nine years old. And thus, my hate for the Bills was born. I hated that they took my family from me and my dream of listening to the Sabres preseason game on AMFM radio. You know, I hated that people dared to love them more than the Sabres or talk about them instead of the Sabres. I hated that for all these years they were horrible, and now when it was time for me to hate them, they were going to be good. How dare they? I hated their fans who threw snowballs at me. Why would you throw snowballs at a kid? I hated that. I hated them. I remember my parents, my well, my mom and my stepfather at the time, they were, they were going to buy me a starter jacket. And for some reason, they had to buy the starter jacket while I was in school. There was no way that they could possibly get me this jacket when I wasn't in school. And I knew right there that meant it was going to be a Bills jacket. And I gave them a list of all the starter jackets I wanted that wasn't a Bills jacket. And they came back with a Bills jacket. And I was humiliated every day I had to wear that jacket. I hated it. And then luckily, within a year or two, uh, Dan, a friend of mine, worked at the starter outlet and was able to get me a Saints starter jacket. And I wore, I started to wear that instead. I hated it. I hated the Bills with a passion. Uh, they were my least favorite team in all of sports. And it's gone on like that for a long time, really. And then I remember the day that the Saints won the Super Bowl. And I remember looking around at one point in the room and everyone that was there with me, these people that I loved, these people that cared about me were in Saints gear, cheering their asses off for the Saints that day. And they were all Bills fans. All these people that I loved, Bills fans, were there to support me 
to support the Saints, support my dream coming true that day. They were all there. And I kind of thought about that for a while. Just like, first of all, I don't like to root against other people's teams. You know, I'm not the kind of guy that texts someone if my team beats your team. You know, I don't rub it in. I don't like to make bets. I don't appreciate it when people do it to me, so I don't do it to other people. And I know some people think that that is some kind of is not fun or something, but I, I just don't like it. And I don't do it to other people. I especially don't do it to people I love. Uh, and at times that's been difficult when it comes to the Bills. At times I've wanted to like jump on Twitter and just bash the Bills. You know, I've wanted to do that. But I look at that in a way as bashing people I care about, right? Like everyone just about that I love the most. Now, my wife and my daughter, they're Saints people. They don't care about the Bills. So I got them for now. But I'm sure maybe one day, you know, Paula will be with her friends going to games, going to opening day. Maybe she'll turn out to love the Bills. Hopefully not, but maybe. But my mom, my brothers, my dad... These are Bills fans, you know, good people who, and they love the Bills. They're not, you know, fair weather. My mom has been a Bills fan since the 1970s. You know, maybe even the 1960s, really. She was born in 1959. I doubt she waited till she was 11 to like the Bills, so I take that back. She's been a Bills fan since the 1960s. You know, I remember, I have a fond memory of going to watch the AFC Championship game, the first one that the Bills won before Super Bowl twenty five with her. And I do remember being happy for her and being happy for Buffalo that the Bills won that day. Still mad they threw snowballs at me, but I was glad they won. I felt bad when Norwood missed that kick. As the arrow progressed, I felt less bad about the second loss and less bad about the third, maybe even happy about the fourth. I was giddy about the Music City Miracle. See, but I was I was naive. I didn't realize how painful a loss like that was. And of course, I found out years later how painful those losses are. So I regret the way I acted that day. I regret how happy I was the Bills lost that game. The point being here is like, look, at it's hard for me to hate the Bills. On one hand, I hate them more than any team, than the Falcons and the Maple Leafs. And on one hand, I want them to lose every game. I want them to be 0-16. I want them to be, a, they have such high expectations this year. And I just want them to crash and burn and be a failure. I want Josh Allen to be a bust. Right, that's on one hand. But then on the other hand, I question that. Like, really, do you feel that way? Really? Why? Why do you feel that way? Why does it matter? They're not in the NFC. They don't affect the Saints. Why not let them be good? Why not have Greg and Anthony and my mom, my mother-in-law? Why not let them feel joy that I have the last few years? I felt so good when the Saints won the Super Bowl and so much of me wants my friends, my or forget my friends, 
my family to experience what I experienced that day. I want that really badly for them. So I have to back off on the Bills hate. I've come to terms with that. I've decided that the worst I can do is indifference. You know, that anything worse than indifference is just wrong. For the most part, though, I have been supportive. You know, I try to support these people I've mentioned, my mother and my brothers, when it comes to the Bills. I struggle sometimes, uh, especially when they complain about luck or something like, oh, of course this would happen to the Bills or something like that. I start to struggle because I'm like, well, why, why can't it happen to the Bills? But then I catch myself and I'm like, you you know, this is just a, this is just fans talking like fans. You do this, too. You know, I actually I'm proud of the level of self-awareness I have. So I try to be aware in this situation as well. Like, hey, that's just part of being a fan. Don't 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 be upset by that. You know, let them have their moment. So I'm trying really hard. I am. It's something that I know. And look at behind closed doors, I might snicker at the pain of a Bills playoff loss last year. I might. That's like the the devil and the angel on the shoulder. Like the devil sometimes will get a laugh in. Uh, But the angel's always right there to say, come on. Come on now. Your people root for that team. You don't want to root against your people. What's wrong with you? Come on. You know. So I'm trying. You know, to all my friends and family who love the Bills. I am trying. I hope that the Bills... Go 13-3 and three this year. I hope that they lose the AFC Championship game. I hope that the Saints win the Super Bowl. Drew Brees retires. And then next year, the Bills get over the hump. And win the, NF- the AFC Championship game. And get their Super Bowl. Next year. Because I don't think I can live through a Saints and a Bills Super Bowl. That just does not sound fun to me. So they got to wait a year. Uh, But I'm trying. Enjoy the games this week. I'll be back really soon with Jeff Perlman.